Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, August 24th, 2010, and we're so glad that you've joined us. Our special guest tonight is Kathleen Cushman, the author of Fires in the Mind. Kathleen, welcome. Thank you, Steve. It's really great to be here with you. Okay. And poor Kathleen has to put up with not having a uh, working headphone tonight or head earbuds, so she's going to have to turn her mic off when she's not talking. Like right now. There you go. Thanks so much, Kathleen, for being here. Future of Education is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate. Now Blackboard Collaborate. You're going to hear that phrase a little bit more now that the official acquisition of Illuminate has been made. Uh, the project I work on is called Learn Central a social network for educators that has Illuminate baked in, and we encourage you to come and use it. It is free. We are we have announced a uh, call for proposals for the Global Education Conference. We're getting some great uh, proposals and partners from all over the world. This should be a lot of fun. Please go to globaleducationconference.com and sign up to participate if you are so inclined. Uh, we're going to start listing the actual accepted sessions starting next week. We'll be rolling acceptances, so it should be a lot of fun to see what starts building. Coming up on the future of education tomorrow during the day, uh, we're going to be talking to some folks at BYU-Idaho about their learning model. This was profiled in Anya Kamenetz's DIYU. Uh, and it's uh, because I have a child at BYU. It's, uh, I think I had a little bit of an in getting the interview, but it should be a lot of fun sort of rethinking higher education. Uh, George Siemens is scheduled for Thursday. Uh, next week, Vicki Abelli's on her movie, The Race to Nowhere. Uh, Craig Watkins on his book, The Young and the Digital. And then Charlene Lee and Rob Darrow on the same day. Charlene is the author of Groundswell and Open Leadership. Uh, so uh, really should be a lot of fun coming up here. If you've missed the session, all the recordings are up at futureofeducation.com. The links are there or the MP3 files or the podcast, or the iTunes podcast link. Uh, yesterday was Amber Mack on her book, Power Funding. Very interesting interview, not directly related to education, but about social media and demystifying the role of social media. I think Amber's voice is well worth listening to. Of course, great sessions with Carol Dweck and Linda Darling-Hammond. And we're actually going to mention that a little tonight because of a uh, blog post where Richardson has uh, put up about Linda Darling-Hammond's interview, uh, and lots more. Hopefully, there's something there that's worth listening to help you pass your drive time. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is participative. We hope that you will participate. The first thing I want you to do is to go up to View Layouts and switch your layout to the wide layout. You'll find it's much easier to watch the chat. At the bottom of the participant window, you'll see emoticons for smiling, clapping, confused look, or thumbs down. We don't usually get the last two, but we get lots of the first two, so please feel free to use them. If you'd like to ask a question when we get to that point, you use the hand with the green up arrow. That's that larger icon. And if you think you'd like to ask a question using the microphone, please do go now to Tools Audio, run the Audio Setup Wizard, and make sure that your mic is working. You're also going to be welcome to put questions in the chat, so don't feel that you have to use the mic. Now we're going to give you your first chance to participate. And you now will have permissions to modify this map, which you'll do by clicking on the laser pointer with the star at the end. It's the wand with the star at the end. And then clicking on the map, and then put the little dot on the map to let us know where you're participating from. So again, I love the international guests. India uh, looks like Japan. Where, um, my uh, Asian geography has just failed me. Australia, Hawaii. Please feel free to shout out in the chat where you're participating from. Philippines. Okay, it seemed like it was high enough for Japan. I apologize. Galapagos, maybe. <laughs> Sydney. Wherever you are from or are listening from, we're glad to have you here. That's going to haunt me all night. Of course, that's not Japan. What was I thinking? But hey, if I can't make a mistake publicly, where can I make it?
Okay, we're going to move right along here. So Kathleen, uh, this is now the time that you can begin turning your mic on and off. Uh, I'm wondering if you would start, you have a great slide deck uh, for us tonight and some, some really fun audio clips, but I'm wondering if you could start by giving us a little bit of a sense of your background and the other books you've worked on and how this sort of ties into those. Sure. Well, as you may know, um, my work at What Kids Can Do, which is a nonprofit organization that I co-founded almost 10 years ago now, and Barbara Cervone and I, the, the, my co-founder Barbara Cervone and I call it WKCD, um, as if it were a radio station almost, involves, although it's not, involves bringing the voices of students themselves to bear on questions that have to do with their lives as learners. And for the past few years, um, well, for the past 10 years, I've been working with students, collaborating with students to produce mostly books and some mixed media materials that come directly from their voices, which I transcribe and organize into books largely for teachers, but also for parents and for uh, principals and for other people who care about the because your sound has gotten so garbled that we can almost not tell what you're saying. Uh, would you mind turning your mic on again and making sure you're, you're positioned where you were before and let's see if it's a problem with the mic. The mic is on. How does this sound? Now that sounds no, about that sounds 10 about times 10 better. better. Okay, so maybe I was too close to it. Would so you can like we, me to start? Yes, can we get you to do that again? I'm sorry. Sure, no problem. So as you may know, my work at What Kids Can Do, uh, which is a nonprofit organization I co-founded with Barbara Sorbonne almost 10 years ago, involves bringing the voices of students themselves. Kathleen, it's happening again. I'm sorry. Um, what I'm can I do? I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you have a phone close by. Sure. Let's have you call in on the teleconference bridge. bridge. So what so you do to do that is you turn your audio off and then in that lower section where you use the microphone and there are the two sliders, you click on the little headset button. If you hover over it, it will say switch to using the telephone for session audio and it will give you instructions to call that. So folks, sorry about that, but I think this will be much better because that, for some reason her audio starts well and then fades. So Peggy has more yes, confidence Steve, in me. Um, Steve, are you talking about the little, um, the little telephone icon? It's not it's the not telephone, telephone icon, icon at the very bottom, bottom, but it's a little, little handset icon. It's to the lower right, right, right below the slider bars in the audio area. Gotcha. But you have to turn your mic off for that one. That'll work. There you go. Yes, I promise you this is worth it. Those of you who were patiently waiting yesterday for Amber Mack will feel that this is a s short delay, but um, it'll, be, it'll be much better if we can actually hear her clearly. And we did test things out today and it was fine, so I'm not quite sure what's happened. So Wendy's asking about the James, the Jim G talk, and it should be, if you go to futureofeducation.com and you on the left hand side you'll see the uh, the recordings page link and you click through there find the uh, link for the recording and it's likely that you'll then get a link that will take you to learn central where the full eliminate recording is or on that same um, top of that page there is a, a link to a delicious feed or the iTunes feed to get the mp3s Hello? Hello? You're back and we can hear you Hello, very Steve? well. Okay. So, I'm going to start over. <laughs> Apologies to everybody. This was a last minute break on my computer this afternoon about 4 o'clock. So, as you may know, my work at what Kids Can Do, which is a nonprofit organization that I co-founded almost 10 years ago with Barbara Cervone, involves bringing the voices of students themselves to bear on questions that have to do with their lives as learners.
And for the past nine years or so, I've been working on books with students where I take their voices and organize them into um, a form that can help connect educators, whether they're teachers or principals or their parents or people in the community to their, their lives and their experiences of learning. So for the past two years, WKCD has been working on something we called the Practice Project, where students from around the country joined us to explore a simple question that really transformed the way we looked at teaching and learning, whether that learning was happening in school or out of school. And that question, which Steve is going to bring up the next slide for, is what does it take to get really good at something? So Kathleen, before you go, Steve, can you talk? I can when talk I when talk? you talk in this way. Hey, I would love you just to tell the names of the books because I think they're so fun. Sure. Well, um, the very first one was called Fires in the Bathroom: Advice to Students from High School Advice to Teachers from High School Students, and that phrase came from a something a 14-year-old girl said in the process of talking about uh, classroom culture. She said, while new teachers are trying to be so nice, we're off setting fires in the bathroom. And those students really talked a lot about the relationships that they built with teachers and how it affected their teaching and learning. After that book came out, that was from New Press, the, um, the publisher asked if I would work on another book called fires in the middle school bathroom. And may, may I add that both these ideas were the ideas of a wonderful foundation called MetLife Foundation, which all the way through has had such a strong commitment to student voice that um, the MetLife Foundation program officer called us and said, you're talking to students. Why don't you get students to talk directly to teachers? And that commitment on their part has gone all the way through fires in the bathroom, fires in the middle school bathroom, and more recently, fires in the mind. And it's become a bit of a series. I don't know what fires we're going to start next. And I noticed in the I noticed in okay? the uh, the quote section on the early page, it looks like you must have written a book called Sent to the Principal. Yes, sent to the principal also supported by MetLife. And uh, that, was, um, that had more to do with school climate. And students were talking directly to principals about what is um, the, the, uh, <laughs> what, what they think about the decisions that only principals and largely teachers don't get to make, things like everything from dress code to parking policies to detention, all kinds of things like that. And then there are, are a few other books, which all of which you can see by going to What Kids Can Do um, website, which is whatkidscando.org. So I've brought up the schedule of future events because I forgot to point out that in October you're actually going to bring a student panel to Future of Education. Did you remember that? Yes, yes, and um, that's partly a. a uh, an elaboration of this work that we're doing in Fires in the Mind, which is all about mastery and motivation and deliberate practice. So it's kind of a, a going deeper into that subject by asking, is homework, in fact, deliberate practice? I can't wait for that. But let's get you started now with uh, today's question. Okay, so what does it take to get really good at something? So we believe at What Kids Can Do that that central question immediately brings up two big issues that classroom teachers worry a lot about. One of them is students' motivation or lack of motivation to take on challenging learning. And the other is what and how kids need to actually do in developing their mastery of important knowledge or skills or habits of mind and habits of work. So you can go on to the next um, slide. And what the students and I started with was to think really hard about what mastery looks like. And I'd invite um, people that are here tonight to think hard about it too and talk to each other about it. But 
the kids and I pretty much agreed with everybody else that we know it when we see it. And when we talk about mastery or people who are masters, we agreed that whatever their field, whether they're plumbers or doctors or tattoo artists, they bring to the problem at hand a huge fund of knowledge and skills that have become second nature to them. So they welcome complex problems because they can use their, that call on that fund in a way that gives them pleasure. And what the kids and I realized was that they too, kids too, have things that they're already getting very, very good at. And some of them are, are right here in this slide, but perhaps some of you can add some examples thinking about the students that you know well. So you can put and, those in the chat. Um, it would be fun if you list. Now, we had talked maybe about having them list the things that they notice that students are already good at. And did you want them to also list things that they're good at personally? Sure, sure. But right now, we're really concentrating on connecting with students in order. We have a kind of a trajectory in this exploration with students. And it's important to realize that um, students often don't think that we don't often think of students as being experts in things. But in fact, asking them and asking them to describe those things is a really important step to creating a common language about developing mastery. So why don't you um, click to the next slide and we'll do what I ask the students to do at this point, which is to check our assumptions and ask yourself and talk to each other on this chat about do people become experts because they're born with talent, or do they get there by practice? And that may seem kind of a um, simplistic question, uh, because uh, many of us would naturally answer both. Yes, and they do, and they do get there by practice. They are born with talent, and they do get there by practice. But in fact, it gets a little more complicated than that. So let's move to the next slide, if we can, and, and uh, listen to what a student said. Because almost every student I asked that question answered the, our central question, what does it take to get very, really good at something? by talking about practice. They didn't start by talking about talent. So here's what I heard, for example, from a Chicago high school student named Darius at the very beginning of my project. Steve, you want to bring in the Darius's voice? Everything takes practice. It's like not one day you can just get up and say, oh, I'm going to do something. You gotta practice at it. You might be good at it when you first start off, but you still gotta practice it so you can get better because no one's perfect. Like me, I can draw real good. But there's certain things that I wanna know how to do in drawing that I can't do right now. So I just keep practicing and keep working at it. So this is really, of course, the same thing that we've been talking about. You talked about it with uh, Carol Dweck the other night in that wonderful conversation. We uh, the cognitive researchers have been working on it intensively for the last 20 or more years, 20, 25 years. And the role of deliberate practice is really central to the study of how you get really good at something, the development of expert performance, or the development of very high level performance. And so I had read a lot of that research, and I brought it to my conversations with students. And as we explored it, we discovered lots of really interesting concepts that really had huge implications no matter what kids were learning and no matter where they were learning. So let's look at the next slide, for example. So what's the role, for example, of inborn ability? And what's the role of opportunity, as everybody who's read Outliers knows that um, the role of opportunity is huge and how good you really get at something. How about the natural affinities that you, one seems to be born with but can't really say why? Or what about the role of coaching? Uh, if you look at a book called, like, called The Talent Code by Dan Coyle, you'll see a lot uh, of emphasis put on 
the way you coach and the kind of practice that you do. So effort, practice, and um, Carol Dweck's concept of mindset, all of those things have some play some part. So it's not just what you're born with and it's not just practice either. It's a lot of other things. And in the next slide I'll describe how the practice project worked to bring students into this conversation. So this, Kathleen? So oh, what we did... It I'm was sorry, there's a little bit of a lag yes. when we do the telephone bridge, so I apologize. I just wanted to warn you because uh, I thought you had paused. When you do the next audio clip, let's have you turn your computer speaker down because I think that came through the telephone bridge and that will make okay. it a little clearer for people. Okay. Sure. I'll mute it, okay? Perfect. So, so we called our investigation the practice project because kids really understood intuitively what cognitive scientists had been finding out from all that research about the big questions. So I started as I said, by asking young people to tell me about anything that they already did really well. And I asked them first, how did you get interested in that thing? And how did you first learn about it? How did you first learn to do it? I asked them, what was hardest when you first got started? And I asked them, what made you keep doing it even though it was hard? Who did you look to? What exemplars did you look to? Who did you trust to critique you? And once you started getting really good at it, did you want to get better at it or did you want to just stop? Was it over? That's the first thing. The next thing I asked was I asked kids to go ask those very same questions of adults. Adults who the kids thought were expert at what they did, highly accomplished adults that they could locate in their communities. Very often they were their parents or um, sometimes it was fixing cars, sometimes it was being a pediatrician, sometimes it was a, a musician or a basketball coach, Some, once it was a tattoo artist, all kinds of people they labeled as people that they would go to with a problem if they had a problem in that field. So the plumbers fix the toilets, the tattoo artists do the tattoos, etc. Then when they really looked closely at the answers those adults made, then they compared the process the experts described to their own experience getting better at things. And they saw a lot of things in common. So finally, we asked ourselves, is anything similar about getting good at things outside of school, like for example basketball, and in school, like math? And that was the work. That's the essential work of the practice project. And you can, um, you, I wrote it up into a very simple curriculum, which is on my blog, which is called firesinthemind.org. And I figure if this curriculum takes about five days uh, with students to take it from beginning to end. And you can find it in the resources of that section of that blog as a free download. We pretty much give free downloads of anything people want. And um, if you want to do your own practice project, I would encourage you to do it because we would like to publish the results. The practice project ends in a report. Ours ended in a book, but yours might end in a report. So we would love to put on this blog other people's practice projects. So maybe we want to look at the next slide. So simply by looking closely at their own experiences and comparing them with adults' experiences when those adults are very accomplished, the students came up with a lot of really interesting evidence about what lights a fire, if you will, in their minds, what gets them started at challenging learning tasks, what keeps them going when it gets hard. And I'd like to bring you the voice of Joshua, also from Chicago, also in grade 9, who started his conversation with me by saying, I'm real good at architecture. Okay, so I'm going to play the clip now. Uh, and when I do, those of you who just joined the session may not hear it because it does have to download to your computer before it will play. Most of you, the great majority of you will hear it. If for some reason you don't hear it, you can come back later to the recording and it will play during the recording. So here goes. So Steve, did I actually that come think up? it did. 
good. So what do we see then in that story that lit a fire for Joshua? What helped him to the point where he was willing to slog through something he didn't like doing, reading a difficult text, the help manual of this software manual, to get to where he wanted to go? So look at this is the list that the kids and I came up with that got him going and kept him going when it got hard. The first step was watching an expert. Then the spark of interest was noticed. Then somebody, his uncle in this case, gave him the opportunity to explore and to practice with his uncle around. He had his little successes. And it was all in this meaningful context because he knew his uncle was doing this construction work with this program. And believe it or not, by the time he talked to me in October of his ninth grade year, he, Joshua himself was working on the architectural layouts for a strip mall that his neighbor had asked him to design because he couldn't afford a professional to do it. So the, the kid was right. He was real good at architecture. So let's take a look at the next slide. The, as, what we saw with Joshua was that at as he managed every step in turn, each step was pushing him to stretch just the right amount. And each one, as he managed it, helped him believe that he could do it. And that value, that combination is really essential to motivation among students. And they realized it as, as I was coming to realize it. You value something because it matters to you somehow. And that value can come from anywhere. It can come from being with particular people that you admire. It can come from using the knowledge in a way that's important to you. It doesn't have to come from the actual, um, the actual subject area even. It can really come from being with other people that are doing it that you like and you want to be with. So then once you value it, if you also expect that you can do it, that you can succeed at the next little step if you try, that combination is what makes all of us want to start something and also to keep at it even when it gets hard. So the kids and I had a huge insight from this that motivation wasn't something you had at the start. It's really the product of these two other factors. And any time we really listen closely to people talk about wanting to learn something, we hear those two factors of value and expectation come up. Because if either factor is zero, the product is going to be zero too. You won't have any motivation if value is missing or if expectation is missing. So that, that was an enormous insight for us. Can you hear me, Steve? Loud and clear. Okay, so on the on the next one, this was our list of what that kids made up of what made them keep at something when it started to get hard. And a whole lot of really different things kept these kids going. One of them was just when the work was steady and satisfying. They they often talked about their sports teamwork or any kind of teamwork as being just worth it in itself because they were with other people and the work was satisfying. Uh, I love Vanier, the second one, who talks about the, the person who doesn't believe you can do it and the person who does believe it. Why don't we uh, let Vanier talk now? So uh, Lanier, the hater and the motivator, is one of my favorites. But some of the, many of the students also talked about the thrill of competition or just the sheer fun of it, the fun of, of doing something hard and doing it well. And I'd love to listen to Dan talk about this, if you can bring up his audio. OK, and Liz is saying that uh, she may not be hearing the clips. If you're not hearing the clips, uh, I'm not quite sure why. It does play through your own computer speakers. 
um, and we apologize, but you should be able to hear them uh, when you play the recording back. We're going to go ahead with Dan now. So Dan is talking about that inner win and um, that those moments that you really just know that you know it. So this was the list of what kept kids persisting, their list. And from there we went on to one more absolutely critical ingredient that brought them to a high level of performance and without which they couldn't get to a high level of performance. And that was the element of not just any practice, but deliberate practice. And here are the elements on this list of deliberate practice that make the researchers say that it really works. It's, uh, I just took this and the kids and I talked about it, but we didn't make this up. These are, this is what cognitive researchers say are the elements, the traits of deliberate practice. So it's not necessarily enjoyable, but it works whether you're learning cartooning or basketball or ballroom dance, and it also works in the classroom. So express purpose involves attention geared to the individual, not to everybody, involves rehearsal or repetition. It always leads to new knowledge or skills, and those lead to even more. So again, I'd like to bring back Dan and his ballroom dance partner, Taishina. These are two eighth graders from a middle school in New York City where ballroom dance is an option for gym class. And you probably saw Mad Hot Ballroom. This is one of the schools that was in, involved in Mad Hot Ballroom. So they're talking about the kind of practice that most helps them get better. And I love to listen to this particular audio and pretend they're talking about um, English, which is my subject, of, or any academic subject. I, I'd love to listen to that. So go ahead and bring that up. So you can hear in pretty much everything these students say that they are starting to become what we started calling experts in expertise, that the students themselves were getting good at getting good and understanding what it meant to get good. So if we look at the next slide, at that point we started to talk about what deliberate practice would look like if it were happening in the classroom. And we took those elements, which here appear in orange, the criteria for deliberate practice, and we started, the kids and I both started to ask ourselves, well, what would it look like in the classroom if you were practicing something um, with an express purpose? And you can see the kinds of, so, kinds of examples that we came up with. So for example, math work. That, and I'd love it if you all would hear chime in with your own examples from your own classes of what you're doing in your classroom with, that has an express purpose, that counts as practice. Practice involves attention. So maybe in history and geography, instead of just memorizing things, you would put the facts to use. Practice is geared to the individual. So maybe your reading and your writing would be connecting to your own Student, each student's interests or needs. Deliberate practice involves repetition or rehearsal, so preparing to perform or present something that you're learning in public is true deliberate practice. And it leads to new knowledge or skills, and that's why 
deliberate practice is always including asking what you still don't know. So, so on the next slide, so I'm going to interrupt you just for a second, uh, Kathleen. I'll just give you because uh, Durf okay. asks, is this on sure. a page in the book? And I think you have a sort of a double-page spread where you show um, the kinds of that. Oh, I'm going to take it in the traditional. This particular slide with the deliberate practice in the classroom is a whole chapter and so of the book. And so um, it, it, that's, that's where it appears. I, I kind of condensed it for this, this chart, but it would be easy enough to send it to them. All he needs to do is write me in, write uh, kcushman at firesinthemind.org or info at firesinthemind.org or even just post your question as a reply on the blog and I'll send it right off to you. Great. Thank you. So at this point, almost everything you see here as a list is available either on the blog, in the book, or direct from me if you want it. Uh, just ask for it. And the, we, we explored how all this um, deliberate practice on the last slide, we saw how it, this slide that you have in front of you, um, how it helps students develop academic knowledge and skills. But on the next slide, we started talking about habits and if one needs practice also in habits. And based on their out-of-school um, experience, students said absolutely they need practice in habits, getting to work on time and things like that. So some of these are habits of mind and some of them were habits of work. But together we made this list, which is not obviously not new thinking. Most of you on here have used the habits of mind, and everybody knows that these work habits are, are something that you need. But putting it in the frame of practicing it and encouraging students to recognize, chart, and celebrate their small steps on the way to the habits of experts was what kind of turned our heads in a different direction. Much of this is really not new. It's just a new way of thinking about it. So on the next slide, I want to ask the big elephant in the room question. And inevitably, anybody who spends time in classrooms notices it to ask, is homework, which is often seen as the real practice in school, is it deliberate practice? And MetLife itself has a has an annual survey of the American teacher a couple of years ago, 2008, when we were doing this, uh, researching this book, that focuses completely on homework. It's such a hot topic that we can't deal with it here tonight. But I have a whole separate presentation and workshop on that topic. And my experience with teachers is that they have a lot to say about it. And and a lot of ways to revise their homework so that it then does become deliberate practice. But it's a really tough proposition. So my student collaborators actually in the practice project made a chart which is in the book which is really a stunning list of contrasts by comparing their homework assignments with the criteria for deliberate practice. And you can find that chart in Chapter 8 of the book, and you can download Chapter 8 from the blog, Fires in the Mind. So I'm really curious with the uh, teachers here today what they're currently, what you're currently asking your students to practice, and you maybe you want to put the next slide on, um, which just is my prompt when I work with teachers. I ask them what they are themselves practicing, but I also ask them to describe what they're asking students to practice and how they're asking them to practice it. And again, this is a long conversation. It's really the subject of a workshop in itself that I'm hoping you'll come and join this really important conversation on the blog that we're um, presenting at firesinthemind.org, which really is there for you and for your developing thinking along with mine and the students. So let's take a look at the next slide because it contains a wonderful example of how a teacher answered that question. What are you asking your students to practice? And how are you asking your students to practice it? 
Now this student is named Monty and he goes to school in the very poorest neighborhood of Chicago and he is passionate about writing poetry. And his English teacher knew that Monty was passionate about writing poetry and in what I think is just a striking story of developing mastery, that teacher built Monty's passion for poetry into his new understanding about essentially about Shakespeare, about the dramatic structure of plays. And we're going to listen to Monty tell how it happened in two parts. And you have to listen carefully. His, his, um, he can be hard to understand, but what he says is very powerful. So let's try it. Monty, part one. So, so Steve, when I heard this, um, just the hair stood up on the back of my neck. It felt like Monty had really understood how a, how a play can be made out of poetry. But Monty's teacher didn't stop with playwriting. The, the next question I asked Monty was, well, did that go any further than that? Did you take it any further than writing plays? And Monty said, sure. He helped me, uh, playwriting helped me learn to write essays. And I think it's worth listening to his next short audio piece that talks about that because it's, he's, he's thinking about it really at a college level, even though he's articulating it at a high school level. You can see his thinking come through, so I'll mute. So Steve, I, I just want to say I used to teach for many years uh, expository writing to first year students at Harvard and I worked so hard to get them to understand essays in the way that Monty just described. So I'm just really impressed with that teacher for taking him from where what he really did know how to do well and to move him to understand that about the place of voice in, in essays and the asking of questions in essays. So that's almost the end. I wanted to kind of wrap up this question that we've been talking about with the next slide before I uh, play you another audio. But as what what have we really been talking about here? What, what, is, what does it take to get really good? So our feeling at the Practice Project is that it takes looking at students' strengths really carefully, analyzing them with the students, that it takes asking experts how, how they get really good at things, whether that involves formal or informal education, all the ways that experts get to be experts that it takes understanding the place of valuing something in motivation and the factor of expecting that you can do something in, as a factor in motivation. And finally, it really takes very carefully lining up what we do in teaching with what deliberate practice says works. So we can do this. 
And what was really inspiring to me about working with these close to 200 students at this point is that uh, that deeply on this is that we can bring the powerful practice of of deliberate practice into classrooms every day just by asking students to think about it with us, and that establishing that common language is so compelling to students themselves. So I want to give the last word to Denise, who was working as a student intern at Youth Radio in Oakland when I met her. And um, Steve, I'm going to mute so you can play what she said. Okay, so I'm looking now. I'm finally getting a chance to look at all the chat. <laughs> it's wonderful. So, Kathleen, are you ready for some Q and A? Yes, please. Okay, so I will start. Uh, but we only have about 12 minutes left, so we'll quickly move to the audience here. And if you want to ask Kathleen a question, you can do so by raising your hand using the hand with the green up arrow that's at the bottom of your participant window. Or you can put a question in the chat, and I'll try and catch those. So mine is sort of a question and an observation. There's so much to me here that's reminiscent of what Tony Wagner did, uh, which he described in, in an interview when he came on Future of Education where rather than handing down to local school administrators uh, a set of values or principles to follow, they gathered the community together and had them build their own set of principles, which in almost every case, he said, turned out to be the same as get developed everywhere else. But they were then vested in it because they had gone through the process. So we didn't have five days today to go through this process with those who were participating in attendance. But it sure feels to me as though the takeaway isn't the content here as much as it's the process in getting to that content with the individuals. Is that accurate or fair? Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the minute um, Barbara Cervone and I started thinking about practice in this way, we wanted to talk about it all the time with each other about what we're practicing. And when I work with teachers, uh, it's the same as uh, what's really wonderful about this uh, way of thinking is that it brings teachers and students into a common um, a common work, the work of thinking about how do you get first interested in something. So teachers think about it for themselves, students think about it, and then they see all kinds of commonalities and they they real it really builds a bridge between the teacher and the learner so that both of them see themselves as learners and learning from each other. So I love to do this with teachers. And when I work with teachers, I always do ask them to spend considerable time thinking, start really by thinking about and describing their own practice. And then we do the same thing. How did you get started? What was hard? All that, those same questions which are in the practice project curriculum and, and really infuse the, uh, everything we do in the, on the blog. And too. you do have in the back of the book an appendix that does give a five-day curriculum for secondary teachers or advisors. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, there is. And it's also downloadable from firesinthemind.org. As are many of the actual uh, pages in the book that end up being downloadable as um, PDF worksheets. Yes, anything you want from this book in the form of an um, 8.5 by 11 downloadable worksheet, just say so and I will immediately put it up. I put a, quite a few things up already, but anything else that you want, I'll just put it up because it's, the point is really to get it out there. We're a nonprofit organization. Our goal is to get this kind of thinking out there into the, um, the world.
Okay, so if you'd like to raise your hand to ask Kathleen a question, please use the larger hand with the green up arrow at the bottom of your participant window. I'm now going to look through the chat and see if I've missed any as I was too busy talking. Um, but please feel free to repost in the chat if there is a question that you wanted to ask and I didn't see it. So Colleen is asking. We talked a lot about the students and I talked. Go ahead. Go ahead. Great. Ask. So we have a hand that's raised, and we also have a question in the chat. Um, well, Colleen asks, okay, when students' natural interests are not in my subject, can we still make it meaningful and instill motivation? We're not going to convert everyone to our subject, right? Right, but I, I always uh, talk to teachers about that that subject they took in college because the teacher was so good and then they turned out to really like it, whatever it is, geology for the English major or whatever it is. And I think that the, the, the point is not always to say, oh, you're interested in cars, so let's bring cars into math. Or uh, it's really to say, what, what's the puzzle here? What's the interesting thing here? And as interested as the teacher is, the student can be too. And the other thing is that a, a lot of this, what you're really asking about is value. Value times expectation equals motivation. So, well, Dan Meyer is a wonderful example of this. Dan Meyer is, is my hero in this, and I follow him every day and read all of Dan Meyer is a blogger about math that is just a brilliant strategist for getting kids interested in the real problems of math. And it's worth reading him every day, like a practice. I, that's my new practice, and it's turning me on to math. So I think that what what happens is that people value the work because somebody really cool is really interested in it, and sometimes they value things for uh, the fact that they get to mess around with their friends down at the pond and you know, do research on water quality, but it's so much fun because they're with other people and sure they're learning science, but really it's about being with other people and the science kind of sneaks in there along with it. And good teachers have been doing this for a long time, but thinking of it as the value is what I think is the um, the insight for me. Okay, so uh, Debs, or uh, Kim asked, how do we tell someone that this is important? How do we tell someone that this is important? Well, um, who's the someone? The, uh, the, I'm guessing uh, that she's asking about the, or the yeah, superintendent or administrators. Uh, Arnie Duncan, or um, I think the way to do it is to show them to show to. I mean, part of practice. I mean, the point of a lot of practice is performance, and the more students can actually perform what and have products and performances from what they're doing, the more people are going to be blown away. And when you hear about these lists of 10 amazing schools or, or really great schools that work, very often what you're seeing is students who are actually doing things and really are curious about things. I love Wendy Q's comment about adults completely lack curiosity. They, they might like curiosity, but adults are a lot like kids in this way. You know, and administrators are too, that they have things that they do practice. And getting them to think about it and getting them to think about how they got started and why it is that they want to do that thing, that, can, that conversation can happen with adults too. So this is reminding and me that Marcelo Rodriguez. What it, it's a Go ahead. No, you. Please. I was going to say this is reminding me that Marcelo Rodriguez from Brazil, who came on to talk about uh, lifelike pedagogy, um, is offering his book for free as an ebook. So if you go to my blog, you'll see a posting where you can download that book for free. And and you probably don't know about that particular interview, Kathleen, but it's a school where the kids pick projects and actually work on a project, um, one in English and one in, in Portuguese. Um, probably would resonate very much with you. Hey, Deb says, my ninth grade. My Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay, so Deb says, my ninth grader son said the other night that he wants to be passionate about something but hasn't found it yet. I don't know what to tell him. 
Well, I think sometimes people um, overstress uh, the need for passion. So all of us who aren't necessarily passionate, but who really sort of want to get good at something, um, feel some like second-class citizens. But I don't think it's really necessary. I mean, I used to hear the same things from my Harvard freshmen that, oh, I'm I don't really know. You know, they they toe the line so much that they don't get a chance to, you know, mess around very much with the things that might actually. Um, turn into a passion, but I, I tend to avoid the word passion. I only use it when it really seems like somebody is really passionate, like Monty about his poetry. But um, but I think that just asking a lot of questions um, and get, making a habit of asking questions is the is the key to getting people kinda sorta interested in something. And so I I would say. Don't worry about it if you don't think you have a passion. Just talk about the things you do. Some of these students, and I am telling you, out of all these students, everybody had something that they knew they did well. And for some of the kids in the roughest neighborhoods, it meant that they could get home from school safely, and they knew how to do it. I mean, there are a lot of things that you, when you really think about it, you can do pretty well, and and you learn to do those things somehow. So I think that's. Part of it is just recognizing that and analyzing that. So your assumption, Bertie asked that if a student pursues mastery of one subject, they can do it for others. My, I would say that my goal is to get students to be good at getting good, so that they're not going to end up being good at super good at everything. And I, I guess I kind of agree with Mel Levine in this that you don't have to be good at everything, and it's not really about Interests. It's about knowing if you are interested in something, what it takes to make to really get good at it. And so, as students and teachers too start to recognize that there is a a kind of structure to the development of mastery, then they can choose to get good at something, and they because they're good at getting good. I love what's coming in on the chat right now. Um, learn all this kind of thing is okay. So time true. for one more quick question. Gordon says, "What's the most common mistake made when teachers think of homework?" Well, I think that the most common mistake is giving the same homework to everybody. And deliberate practice is absolutely geared to the individual, and you wouldn't give the same um, uh, homework in in almost anything else besides school. When you're practicing learning something, you watch closely what the learner needs to work on, and that's what you tell them to do that night for practice. If you're if you're learning to hold the violin and you just aren't holding it right, that's what you practice because you can't get anywhere until you really practice that for as long as it takes to get it. And there are all kinds of issues of timing too, but I would say that that's the that's the big thing with homework is is differentiating homework. And there are brilliant comments in the chat. Yes, Len says how to do that with a class of 35. Brilliant, and then brilliant Deanne comments. says I've had students ask me for homework, and I think that's one of the messages in the book is actually asking the students for them to figure out what would be good deliberate practice for themselves. That's right. In fact, we devote a whole page of the book to a bunch of examples the students came up with of instead of asking us to do this, ask us to do that. And there are also some ideas for how to do, how to do it with a class of 35. And one of their ideas is start the homework before we go home. Have us spend some time in class doing the homework so you see what we can't do, what each of us is having trouble with. And I mean, I'm telling you, a lot of kids said my teacher never goes over the homework anyway, and so they don't really know what I'm learning and what I'm not learning. They, we just, if you did it, that was enough. So I mean, I'm not an anti-homework person. I think many, many teachers um, have very legitimate um, needs to give homework, and and. Um, that I think that what we really need to do is to figure out how we can make it deliberate practice. And it's really a tough, this is a tough nut to crack, but I think it's worth, I think it could change the way kids feel about their homework. And, and if it's really about getting good at something, then 
let's make it about getting good at that thing. Okay, we're at the end of our hour. Kathleen, I'm clapping for you. I'm just so delighted you've come on. I really loved the book. I um, just love the concept uh, and, and you're, you're uh, sort of mirroring the process with the students to help them uh, learn this. It feels so transparent and generative to me. So thank you for coming on. Thanks for a great presentation. Well, thank everybody for being so patient with the technology woes. I really appreciate this audience. You're a wonderful group. Come on my blog and talk to me. I'm there for you. <laughs> Goodbye. Okay, yes, thanks to Kathleen. Please do go to her blog. Um, and uh, uh, we thank you for coming tonight. Firesinthemind.org. Firesinthemind.org. Thanks to Learn Central and Illuminate. Now Blackboard Collaborate. Thanks to you for coming. And remember, in October, Kathleen will come on back again with some students to talk about homework. Tomorrow, the BYU-Idaho learning model in the middle of the day. Uh, and then George Siemens on Thursday. Thanks, everybody. And thanks again, Kathleen. Great job. Thank you, Steve.